New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, journalist Judith Valente, writes, Letters are the remnants we leave to mark important episodes in our lives. We introduce ourselves, confide our hopes, confess our errors, offer our thanks, and say goodbye in letters. This married woman is a self-described overachiever and has been sharing correspondence with Brother Paul Quinnan, a celibate contemplative Trappist monk who resides at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Bardstown, Kentucky. These letters encompass a wide range of what it means to be human in a postmodern era and makes for riveting reading as they articulate life's universal questions from very different perspectives. Judith Valente is a former staff writer for the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Journalism. Valente contributes to the U.S. Catholic Magazine and National Catholic Reporter. Besides her life as a journalist, she's a poet, retreat leader, TV and radio producer, and Benedictine lay associate. She corresponds with Brother Paul Quinnan, who entered the Trappist Abbey at Gethsemane in 1958 at the age of 17. He's the author of the memoir, In Praise of the Useless Life, and several books of poetry. Thomas Merton was his novice master and spiritual director. Together, they are co-authors of a book of letters entitled how to be a monk and a journalist reflect on living and dying purpose and prayer forgiveness and friendship join us for the next hour as we explore the wise words exchanged between a married woman and a monk as they contemplate the meaning of life with our guest judith valente i'm speaking with judith by remote connection in her home I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Judith, welcome. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here, Justine. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have you. Letter writing. Let's talk about the importance of letter writing. I mean, it's kind of a lost art in some ways these days. So tell us what you feel about letter writing. I love a quote from the poet Willie Perdomo, who called 
letters are bulwark against loneliness. And um, letters have had a long history in the history of faith. You know, starting with the epistles of St. Paul, those were all letters. We sometimes forget what they started out being. And almost all of the great spirituality writers of all time, from St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who founded the Trappist Order, of which my friend, Brother Paul Quinnen, is a member. Uh, well, he, fa- he founded the Cistercian Order. He was a great Cistercian abbot, I should say. Not the founder, but the but a great Cistercian abbot. Uh, and of course, the Trappists are part of the Cistercians. He was a great and prolific letter writer. Thomas Merton, who is the famous spirituality writer of the 20th century, also a Trappist monk, also from Brother Paul Quinnen's Abbey. He wrote some 20,000 letters in his 53 years on earth and had some 2,000 correspondence. And then, of course, we have the letters of, of people like Dorothy Day, which are, which are so precious and so full of wisdom. Um, so uh, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa's letters as well. So, you know, I could go on and on about the importance of, of letter writing and why we wanted to try to, well, I would say uh, light a spark to this um, fading art of letter writing. Tell us. How did you first meet Brother Paul and, and what like stimulated this, this whole endeavor? Absolutely. Uh, I met him in, in the course of my work as a journalist. I had gone at some point from print journalism, which you referenced, my work at Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, to PBS TV, where I was a faith and values reporter for a national program. And I was sent to Gethsemane in 2008 to do a piece on the 40th death anniversary of Thomas Merton and how Merton's writings uh, remained as popular and relevant as they were in 1968 when, when he died, perhaps even more so. I asked if there was a monk still living in Gethsemane who knew Thomas Merton, and I was directed to Brother Paul Quinnen, who not only had been a novice, at the Abbey when Merton was novice director there. But Merton was his spiritual director, his first spiritual director as a young monk entering the monastery at the age of 17. So who better to talk to? Brother Paul and I, however, a side, a side story to this is he writes poetry. I write poetry, even though I'm, I'm a journalist. He had I think seven collections of poetry that he had published at that point. I had one or two collections of poetry at that point. And we connected on our mutual love for poetry. And we just kept in touch. We would, for uh, I think it was a, a, a total of three years, we would exchange a three-line poem, a Japanese haiku every day, which is something Brother Paul wrote as part of his meditation practice. And I was so intrigued by that, I picked up that practice and we would exchange these haiku. And we ended up putting them together with uh, very brief meditations and a book called The Art of Pausing, Meditations for the Overworked and Overwhelmed. My my part was the overworked and overwhelmed part. (laughs) He was great at the art of pausing. So that, you know, we, we had that history. And so we were always writing to each other. 
and always emailing each other. We would visit each other periodically. I would go to the monastery as a guest. Um, and I began to realize a couple of things. Every time I went to the monastery, there were, were fewer and fewer monks. They were just dying off. And that pretty soon, there would not be very many people left, like Brother Paul, who had 60 plus years in the, in the contemplative life. And so I wanted one to some way to preserve the wisdom of someone who, who had lived this, this long of a contemplative life. And secondly, um, he was sharing so many profound thoughts with me and so much wisdom that I felt there had to be a way to share that. And that's when we decided to see if we could find a publisher for the letters. When you mentioned that, I'm I'm remembering how long he had been there. I remember in the book there was something I can't remember if you were describing it or he was about being at a restaurant with mm. another father, and he was dressed, you know, like some I don't know lumberjack or something, but or like some homeless person even. And these other priests came in. You know, these young priests in their Cossacks coming in. I do describe that scene. It was just such a wonderful scene in the well, it was it was hilarious. Brother Paul and I were asked to speak at a conference in Chicago on on Thomas Merton. It was um it was for Merton's hundredth birthday in twenty fifteen. And we decided to, you know, to go out to dinner on the last night to go to a to a restaurant. And Brother Paul wore the same shirt. The entire three days of the conference, you know, this this bad fitting, um, you know, sort of worn out shirt, you know, that he probably got secondhand. Um, and he looks so out of place because he's usually in his monk's habit. And the other priest, wait till you hear this, Justine, was none other than Richard Rohr, the, the best selling great Franciscan spirituality writer. And here's Richard Rohr in this lumberjack style you know, flannel shirt, wearing a wool cap because he was covering his head. He had just had some skin surgery on his head and he's bald. So he's wearing this wool cap. Here you have Brother Paul looking like a homeless person, a street person, you know, in these worn out um, chinos and this, this oversized shirt that he's wearing. And in walk these young priests, you know, because uh, this was this was on the south side of Chicago where there's a lot of there's a lot of Catholic institutions and in walk these young priests, you know, looking like uh, Father Guido Sarducci from Saturday Night Live. And it was just like, well, look at us, you know, look at us. We're priests <laughs> kind of thing. And, and then here's Brother Paul and Richard Rohr. I mean, two people who, you know, have done so much to to add to deepen the spirituality of of people's lives, especially with Richard Rohr, especially young people's lives. You know, and here are these like <laughs> these two guys looking like homeless people <laughs> in this restaurant, and then these young priests with all you know all decked out with their sashes and their cossacks, and I might add their very shiny, expensive-looking leather shoes. You know, where Paul, I think Paul had on a pair of sneakers, and uh, uh, Richard Rohr had on a pair of old you know, muddy boots. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just quite the contrast. And these young priests had no idea 
the wise church elders, which they were sitting in company with, just had no idea. Well, absolutely. And both these men, Richard Rohr and Paul Quinnen, are the epitome of humility, of the of the, the monastic value of humility, which Merton says is really, you know, the number one, the key to being a monk is to, to cult, cultivate that inner humility. And, you know, and here were these guys who, who, who weren't showing off anything at all. And yet they were the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. You never know. Yeah. Pay attention. Pay attention. This reminds me the first exchange of letters that you did with Paul, at least the ones that you started the book with, was when you were contemplating changing um, your jobs, changing the living. And I remember that there was a phrase that I think Brother Paul used, he said, it's like learning to walk on air. Well, that was actually me. That oh, actually, okay. Actually, it's what I said it felt like. Um, you know, I had been a journalist since I was 17 years old. You know, I started at our local newspaper. And here I was 40 years later um, trying to think about just leaving that all behind, leaving daily journalism behind to write spirituality books. I'm going to interrupt you for just one moment, please, because I want to hear this full story. And I want to remind our listeners that I'm here speaking with Judith Valente, and she's a co-author with Trappist monk, Brother Paul Quinnen, of the book of letters entitled How to Be a monk and a journalist reflect on living and dying, purpose and prayer, forgiveness and friendship. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Here with journalist and poet, I would say, uh, Judith Valente, and she's a co-author with Trappist monk Paul Quinnen of the book of letters entitled How to Be. And we're talking about the, the first part of the book when you, Judith, were talking about leaving your job and you had said it was like walking on air. Uh, I'd love for you to flesh out that story for us. Yeah, I said it was like um, learning to walk on air without a tether uh, because I had been a journalist since I was 17 years old. And here I was, you know, walking away from a good, you know, fairly good paying job at a 
an NPR affiliate to write spirituality books, to, to focus full-time on my spirituality writing. And Brother Paul helped me a great deal because even though he lives in a cloistered order, every monk has to work. Every monk has a job in the monastery, not outside of the monastery. And so he's been a cook, I think, for 40 years in the monastery. And, you know, part of my reason for wanting to leave my job was just I was having, you know, just, you know, uh, unfortunate personality conflicts with my editor. With We had a change in news directors and, you know, we just didn't see eye to eye. If I said something should be a series, he'd say, no, it should be one story. If I said it should be one story, he'd say, no, it should be a series. You know, it was that, that kind of a, you know, kind of a <laughs> uh, push and pull type of thing, which and, and and Brother Paul would tell me about conflicts that arose among the monks in the kitchen and how, you know, sometimes he would make too much noise in the kitchen and that would aggravate the other monks. Or sometimes uh, one of his fellow cooks would say something to him and then he would simmer about it, you know, for days and he would just go over in his mind what he'd really like to say to this monk because, of course... He couldn't say it, you know, and, and, and also they're supposed to be observing silence most of the time while they're working, too. But this would be going on in his mind. And so it was uh, heartening might not be the right word, but it was comforting to know that monks, even people in monastic life, have conflicts and, and tensions arise. And so that was helpful to me. So life is not perfect as a contemplative in a cloistered situation. No, it's not always contemplative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, I think he gave you a wonderful question when you were contemplating leaving this kind of secure sort of place in some ways, but frustrating, secure, but frustrating sort of place. He said, um, Will this bring you closer to God? Or or maybe will this um, bring you closer to divine goodness? Absolutely. Uh, that was a crucial question. You, you've really put your finger on it, Justine. Um, I, you know, I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves all the time in our work. Um, you know, is this is this bringing me closer to to the divine presence or or is this bringing me closer to the sacred in, in daily life or the transcendent in daily life? And if the answer is no, then you, you really need to do something about that. We're, we're in this thing called, what is it? The great, the great resignation. Oh, resignation. Yeah, ex- okay. Resignation or exodus where people are reevaluating their work. And, you know, when I was at the radio station, I became a person I didn't like because there was so much tension and um, arguments and, and me feeling like I wasn't appreciated or that I wasn't being heard. That was the worst part. And I think that's, you know, that's a bad place to be. If you're a, a, a woman professional and you have a male supervisor to feel that you're not heard, that's, that's not a, that's not a good situation. And, you know, I realized that this, 
supervisor was not going was not going anywhere and therefore I had to make the change and I did make the change and brother Paul was very helpful with that and it's very scary to kind of leap off if you say without a tether and I I think of that movie I think it's Raiders of the Lost Ark where Harrison Ford has to step off the cliff and he's assured that there is something there to step on to uh, but we're not it, this is where this is why change is so difficult for us in in many ways i think absolutely you're absolutely right i mean sometimes you know there's the perfect job waiting for you and that's fine that's you know stepping off the cliff and knowing that there's a little embankment there for you to land on and then there's you know times as in my life where i just I left what was very familiar to me, which was daily journalism, um, to strike out into doing something, something that was new, that was totally new, that I had no idea whether I would succeed at or not. And uh, thanks, thanks be to God, I have a whole new career now um, as a spirituality writer, as a, as a speaker, as a retreat leader. And to tell you the truth, I, I don't look back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that reminds me of a phrase that my late husband uh, and co-founder of New Dimensions, uh, Michael Toms, would be fond of saying, he would say, whatever you give your fullness to will take you where you need to go. Yeah. And I, I I just I think that there's something in that that if it's if it's fullness in our hearts and and minds and obviously that's worked out for you. I'd I'd love to um to talk about death, resurrection, and thoughts of heaven. And um I I want to read just a little piece that Paul wrote. I just love this that he wrote. He he said. I think of death as an entrance into the totality of everything. Therefore, our whole approach to the idea of heaven and resurrection just might be on the wrong footing. We start out asking, what's in it for me? But if you keep this self-interest up front, you can never get to the goal. Hope becomes a pretense, a facade. For you inevitably remain trapped in the little jailhouse of yourself. You just expect that a few conveniences may be added someday. Some landscaping and better ventilation, some upscale amenities. I love that, singing of heaven, right? This is too small. That is why I subscribe to the notion of St. Gregory of Nyssa, and some Cistercian fathers, that we will endlessly enlarge our capacity as we drink in more. This very dynamic idea of heaven that goes on until there is no longer an until. So that that gives our listeners a flavor of the depths of the writing. And I'd love for you to comment on his writing here and what what he was saying about our idea of heaven may be way too small. Right. Um, yeah, I think you just put your finger on why I wanted to share his letters to me. I mean, I just couldn't keep something like that to myself because 
it is profound and it really makes you think in a different way. I mean, we've been almost conditioned to think of heaven as a certain place with certain characteristics. And we've been, you know, we've been taught very little, I would say, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying, it's it's all bigger and vaster than we can possibly imagine. And that's why he had, it's one reason why he has no fear of death. It's not because, gee, I think I've been a monk all these years, therefore God is going to re- reward me uh, in the afterlife. It isn't anything like that. It's that he's looking forward to this, um, this vastness, this, 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 opening out and expanding of understanding that he thinks will take place when we see face to face, as St. Paul puts it, rather than through the mirror darkly Mm -hmm. and only partially. I know that, Judith, that you attended, and you write about this in one of your letters, uh, attended a funeral of a monk there at the monastery. And uh, I had no idea how they bury the monks there. I'd love for you to describe it because it's kind of like a death and resurrection in, in and of itself. In and of itself. Yes, Justine. It is so powerful to see. Uh, the monks are put directly into the ground. They're just wrapped in a shroud. There's no coffin there. You know, there's a coffin for their wake, of course, in their funeral mass, which is a simple wooden coffin. And then they're wrapped in a shroud and lowered into the ground, their bodies directly into the ground. And what impressed me so much is there's this monk that climbs down into the into the grave, you know, six feet underground, climbs down on a ladder with the body. You see, the body gets lowered, and then this monk goes down and sort of arranges the body, makes sure, you know, make sure it's it's dignified, you know, its position is very dignified and everything. So he literally goes into the grave, and then he climbs back up out of the ladder uh, onto the onto this the surface of the of the earth. And it is like a metaphor for death and resurrection. And that that stuck with me so much. And also, this particular funeral I described happened to be of Brother Patrick Hart, another, you know, someone I think you know, Justine, and another very long-term uh, monk. He, he probably was there 60-plus years. He was the personal assistant to Thomas Merton, and he was the editor on a lot of the books the, the collections of letters, the volumes of personal journals that of Thomas Merton that we have now. A lot of it was due to Patrick Hart. And what um, impressed me was, you know, he's buried. He's buried in his monk's habit, and and in and in his shoes. He's buried in his shoes. And I remember the, you know, the only thing I saw going into the ground, going into the hole, were these black rubber soled shoes you know without without shoelaces but with a strap and and that was my last vision that my last sight of brother brother patrick were his shoes going in the ground and i always you know we buried my mother and my father and they tell you to, 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 to don't put any shoes on on the dead people and i found that 
so disrespectful because you know my mother would never go around barefoot in the house. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, and so I thought it was it was beautiful that that they were buried with their shoes on and in their habit, their monk's beautiful. habit. Beautiful. I'm here with Judith Valente, and she's the co-author with Travis Monk, a brother Paul Quinnen of the book of letters entitled How to Be a Monk and a Journalist Reflect on Living and Dying, Purpose and Prayer, Forgiveness and Friendship. And if you want to know more about Judith's work, you can go to her website, judithvalente.com, and she spells her last name V-A-L-E-N-T-E, judithvalente.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Judith Valente, co-author with Brother Paul Quinnen of the Book of Letters entitled How to Be. And Judith, I would love to talk about the rule of St. Benedict for uh, monastics. And this is, uh, you know, we, we all hear that we need to do deep listening. In fact, my husband and I, my late husband and I, did whole seminars and deep listening, deep questioning, and we're advised to do active listening. And then the way it's described in the letters, as I read it, there was a different slant, a different context. And listening is a kind of waiting, a suspension of activity in favor of being that really expanded my concept of listening. I'd love for you to comment on that. Right. Yeah, well, listening is probably uh, the first Benedictine value, monastic value you encounter when you read the rule of St. Benedict. The first line of the rule is listen. But St. Benedict takes it a step further. He says, listen with the ear of your heart. And we know that we don't always do that. You know, you, if you listen to cable news shows, people are not listening to each other. You know, the, the people who are there to give one side or another side of an issue, they're not listening to each other. And um, what we need is that deep listening that you refer to, which is a listening with the ear of the heart, with the recognition that None of us, not one of us has all the truth, um, but that we there is something that, that can be learned from each person. And I think that's the lesson of deep listening. I like how you, you describe it as deep listening. And I, I think also in, in that rule, uh, the, the word waiting and that that's what really popped for me waiting because we're all like 
ready. We're figuring out what we're going to reply to and 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 we're just busy. Our our minds are busy. Uh it's so in that waiting, what you gave to me, Judith, was a new way of listening as a meditation, really, truly a meditation that I just quiet down, I put myself present, and I'm just sitting there like as in meditation in total reception of whatever is being served up to me from this uh, conversation I'm having with someone. That's really a great reminder to me. I that was a gift to me, Judah. Thank you. Thank you. No, that's so uh, you've put it so beautifully. Yes. Then with the with the listening and all of that, maybe we could talk about meditation and how how is meditation for you? And maybe you can describe also a little bit of what it was like for Paul as expressed in his letter. Yeah, he, yeah we both struggled with meditation. Um, mine was my, my monkey mind jumping all over and why I decided to, to, to do some, to take some training, I guess you could say, with a, a Zen meditation teacher. And Brother Paul said his problem with meditation was the opposite, that he would get so relaxed he would fall into sleep. And uh, that's not the, pur- the purpose of meditation is not to put you to sleep necessarily, uh, but to have a, perhaps a more profound experience of the sacred. So we, we, we had opposite problems with meditation that had to be solved. And one of the things Brother Paul taught me about meditation is not to have an expectation, um, not to expect one that I would, you know, absolutely quiet my racehorse mind. And number two, that, you know, I was going to have some some vast uh, personality change because I was meditating 10 minutes or 15 minutes or half an hour, whatever, whatever my day could afford. And uh, so that was very freeing for me, what, what he taught me about meditation. And the fact that after 60 years in the monastery, he's still struggling (laughs) with it, too. One of you mentioned the quote from um, Buddhist practitioner and teacher Pema Chodron, uh, who said, we should not meditate with any expectation that we will eventually get better at it. (laughs) Yeah. It made me burst out into laughter. I loved it. Oh, you know, as Westerners, we're always striving for that perfection and a goal oriented just to relax into it. There is a mention to allow yourself to be on the threshold, maybe forever on the threshold, but that's okay. Absolutely. I would love for you to share a, a poem that you shared in the book from brother paul about meditation he called i think he called it discontent right um yeah he says before he he sent me the poem he says maybe christ comes in his poverty and abandonment and that is what i am experiencing in my meditation my own poverty 
So it seems best just to let it alone, to take comfort in the faith that I just don't know what's going on sometimes in meditation. So that's how he prefaced. And then he said, I, I wrote this poem called Discontent that bears upon this point. And here's the poem. Discontent. I step outside after mass to my prayer nook with vague discontent. The clouded sky shows earlier light. The winter solstice, seven days past. The temperature is milder, the air fragrant. Birds are sounding, but none of this satisfies. I sit and hold on to discontent, indisposed for prayer, indisposed for anything. After a while, my inability speaks from its poverty. Nothing within human capacity could ever be adequate for prayer. Truth alone is of any real worth. Let the truth of this moment, then, my discontent, be my prayer. What a wonderful acceptance of saying, okay, just, uh, you know, and this too, and this too, discontent, not as in the Buddhist, not neither uh, grasping or nor aversion, you know, and this too, and just allowing that kind of allowing. And there's a kind of relaxation in that. When I read that poem, I thought, oh, yeah, not to fight my discontent, not to strive to be somewhere else, but just be it. Any comment? Yeah, there's a there's an underlying stream in that poem of surrender. Um, something that we're not good at as Americans. And, you know, we're not good at being and we're not good at surrender. And and so, you know, what he what he's talking about there is very counter counter-conventional wisdom, um, uh, you know, that, that we aren't striving for perfection in this stuff. We're striving for surrender and for being, the state of being. Which might take us to prayer rather than we're asking for a certain outcome or praying for something. Can, can you speak about prayer and what it, what it means for you? Yeah, I I think that my, you know, my ideas or attitudes about prayer have changed a lot from hanging around Brother Paul because he doesn't pray for things, for outcomes. You know, which we're all tempted to do. You know, please let this biopsy be be benign. Please let my, you know, my friend overcome her depression or whatever, whatever it might be. But you know, prayer, prayer for him and what it's becoming more of for me is a conversation, a conversation with the great unknown, you know, whatever you call God, whatever you want to call God, that, that, that vastness um, that God is, uh, for lack of a, another term, um, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a, it's a letting go and, a, and a saying that, uh, well, I just wrote something. I just wrote something in my prayer recently. Um, 
you know, I am one with the healing love of God. I'm healthy and whole in every way. Um, in other words, I don't have to, I don't have to ask for a specific thing. I am at one with God. I am at one with God's purpose for me. And that I was right. I was writing that as a possible mantra. I am at one with the healing love of God, you know, as, as a possible mantra that I could, I could say, as opposed to, um, gimme, 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 <laughs> please help me with this, this, and this. When you say that, I, I'm reminded of something I've contemplated for a while and trying to understand and feel into this, this force, this divine force that exists within everything and enlivens everything and everything is made manifest in it. And it also is like embedded in me. I mean, I'm I'm it and it is me. I mean, it's it's like all one thing, in other words. It, it's a co-creation and all of life is embedded in us. And yet we're part of this vastness. Do you get I'm not sure I'm being very articulate? Yeah, no, I think I think what you're saying is very true. And it's that it's that notion that um you know, all will be well, you know, and all manner of things will be well, as Julian of Norwich said, um, you know, we look at the world today and think, you know, I, I think, I don't know how many times, how, how much worse can this get? You think it cannot get any worse with a, you know, a worldwide pandemic, uh, you know, the, the war uh, in, uh, war in, in, in Ukraine, in, yeah. Ukraine, the econ the economy, you know, the way some people can't mm. afford a, a quart of milk or a gallon of milk anymore. You think it can't get any worse, and then it does. Yes. And so you've got to say to yourself, you know, there's there's meaning in this. There's there's something, you know, God is not asleep. <laughs> um, there's some sort of meaning in all of this for us. Um, so just stay the course, stay in there, um, you know, keep, keep hoping, keep yeah. doing good. That's all we can do. Keep doing good. I love that. Keep doing good. Don't, don't give up, uh, before the miracle, as they say in AA. I'm here with Judith Valente and she's the co-author with Travis Monk, Paul Quinnen of a book of letters entitled How to Be a Monk and a Journalist Reflect on Living and Dying, Purpose and Prayer, Forgiveness and Friendship. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Oh, 
I'm here with Judith Valente, and we're talking about, you know, those deep questions we have in our lives to make them better. And for, for sure, we're talking about poetry and letter writing and, and prayer and meditation and, and death and heaven. And I, I would love to talk about friendship. You cover friendship in this book and, you know, our capacity for friendship, um, which as a spiritual development. So I'd love for you to share with us any thoughts about friendship and what you've learned through your writing with Paul and your, your own endeavors. Well, Brother Paul directed me to a, a treatise uh, called Spiritual Friendship by St. Uh, Alred of Riveau, who was a Trappist uh, monk, and um, or he was a Cistercian monk at any rate of the 12th century. And it's, it's remarkably um, relevant what he writes about friendship. St. Alred had to say about friendship, and this is, this is what I say in one of the letters to Brother Paul. I'd like to think that you and I fit St. Alred's definition of true friends as two hearts speaking to one another. In these letters, we have entrusted to one another, as he would say, the contents of our heart. What makes true friendship is that our hearts are not drawn to one another by hope of gain, but by mutual goodwill. You know, St. Alred talks about something called bene valencia, goodwill, and caritas, caring, charity. That makes good friendship. And, and then St. Alred says something else that I kind of love. He says um, that a spiritual friend, if you're, if you're going to be a true friend, then you are going to be a guardian of love and a guardian of the soul of your friend. And I love that. I love that because it gets... It really gets at what true friendship is. And Alred talks about friend, that, that friendships go on. They go on beyond our, our lives on earth, a true friendship. And we know that's true. I know that you've had friends like that, Justine. Mm -hmm. and, and I've had friends like that, um, where the friendship goes on, even if they've, they've passed on into, into the next life. But that it's aspect of, of, not, of friendship not being something that we look we look for gain in our friendships, but we look for what we can give, how we can be a guardian of the soul of the other person. That's so, it's so profound and beautiful. It really describes friendships way beyond, you know, uh, that in, in, you know, knowing everything about a person or even, you know, it's, it's not even about that or, or sharing different activities, but it's really deeper than that. And I, I think that um, you you use a phrase, something skillful friendships or skillful relationships. So this is like touching on, okay, how can we be really skillful in our relationships and to, if we hold them as that place of guardian of love or guardian of one another's soul, that puts it on a whole different level then, and it's paying attention to spiritual matters, really. I, I often think uh, that the circles that I have, they're circles of friends of the heart, that really we have a spiritual connection. And whenever we meet in circle, we call in spirit to begin with. We always begin our circle with calling in that that spiritual dimension that connects us all. And 
So through the years, as we go through age, you know, and we go through divorce and, and births and deaths and everything, but underneath that, there's something, there's some foundation that's holding it, that we hold each other in this loving presence, I, I guess. In any, any, any further thoughts on that? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You're on target. I mean, St. Allred talks about human friendships make us a friend of God. And that friendship is a step toward knowledge of God. So it's, what you're saying is absolutely right on that, that friendship, true friendship will have the spiritual dimension and it will be a reflection of God's love for us as well. Um, and, and I love that you're that you're, you and your friends invoke bringing the spirit in into your circles when you get together. And, you know, another aspect of that, too, Judith, is that we're not afraid for each other because we know that aspect of each other. In other words, as we go through these hardships or challenges in our lives, I know I'm not afraid for my sister, even if someone is facing a huge um, uh, physical ailment, I won't be afraid because I know that there is something beyond that. And I know what she is capable of. And I know the love that she has manifested already in her life. And it's just like we remind each other of that as, as we go through these challenges, I think. And uh, for me, that's somewhat, that's what, friendship is about and that's what spiritual friendship's about right yeah yeah exactly exactly so and um here we are it's 2022 where the the spring of 2022 and we may be coming out of that sequestering ourselves in the covid pandemic. I don't know, maybe we'll have to go back into who knows what the future will hold, but here we are. So what is it uh, that you feel we have learned from this time that we have actually taken time to go shelter in place? Well, I think a lot of us have grown in appreciation for the basic things of life that we simply took for granted before. I mean, having, having a place to live um, during that time uh, where you could be comfortable. Um, the, the people that help us every day, the mailman, the grocery clerks, uh, the UPS delivery people, <laughs> we see them now where perhaps we didn't see them before the pandemic, you know, the, 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 the people who work at the hospitals, we just took all that for granted. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think any rational person does, does take that for granted anymore. Um, I think we had to learn how to be alone with ourselves uh, because there's a lot of busyness in our culture. I mean, you could stay on the internet 24 hours a day. You could watch cable TV 24 hours a day. And we had to learn, I think we had to learn to to, to befriend ourselves during that period. And Brother Paul said something um, when he was writing about that period that in a way, in a way we've all become monks. And that's probably a good thing to, to be at peace with, with less activity and to be at peace with um, solitude, more solitude. It's probably a good thing that we weren't, we in our American culture are not used to. Mm-hmm. 
That's for sure. That's for sure. You you write about a friend, I, I can't remember who it was, but someone who had AIDS and, and was working and and you were just with them and I think they're dying. And um you came up with a just a profound question that caused me to really pause. And it's something I, I've thought of, but you actually put it into words. You said, um, asking yourself the question, did I love enough? Right. Uh, I was watching a young man uh, die of AIDS as, as a reporter. In fact, I was, I, was, I was writing a story about him and his father. His father was a well-known businessman. And, um, you know, it came down to, I was always worried as a young person about my achievements. You know, could I win the Pulitzer Prize? You know, could I go from the Washington Post to the Wall Street Journal, which I did, and then to PBS TV, which I did. You know, could I, could I ever win a Peabody? And um, I realized it really isn't about that. I mean, the one question I think you want to ask yourself on your deathbed and have a pretty good answer for is, did I love? Three simple words. And that, uh, that's, that's kind of what, what's guided my life since, since that time. Well, then we have to end this conversation with one of your own poems. And if you could share this one with us here as we go out. I've asked for this one specifically before the interview. It's called Desper Time, about an, an old, a loving old couple that I encountered in Italy. Vesper Time. This is how I learned to love, watching an aging couple climb the 25 stairs from Spoleto's old quarter to the new. Even on a day so hot, a dropped egg fried on the stone steps. Every afternoon at five, they arrived at the gelateria, he nearly blind, she guiding him by the arm, ordering one scoop between them. Some days nachola, others pistacchio or amarina, always at the same table. She dipped a plastic spoon in the paper cup and he opened his lips, received her offering like a communion wafer rarely talking, only looking into each other's eyes. Then they headed home the way they came, to a house, I imagine, painted espresso cups on a cedar table, lace doilies on sofa arms, framed image of Santa Rita of Kasha staring from a wall, another afternoon adrift in their calendar of graces. Judith, thank you so much for gracing us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justine. It was an honor. I've been speaking with Judith Valente, who is the co-author with Travis Monk, Brother Paul Quinnen of the Book of Letters, entitled How to Be a Monk and a Journalist Reflect on Living and Dying, Purpose and Prayer, Forgiveness and Friendship. And if you want to know more about her work, go to her website, Judith Valente, spelled V-A-L-E-N-T-E, judithvalente.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3,756. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.